In light of COVID-19, Sport Calgary has compiled together a directory of webinars and digital events to help you stay connected in the Calgary sport community. Learn more at sportcalgary.ca. Hey kids, uh, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, Really, if this is your first one or if you haven't been here for a while or if you're a regular listener, I'm glad you're here. You're really, I think, going to enjoy this podcast today. It's a good one. Really good one. Welcome. I am uh, Rob Kerr from Sport Calgary. This is Sport Calgary's original six feet conversation podcast, our celebration of sports, people in sports, the city and and, and its sports history. This is a Calgary-centric sports podcast, and today uh, we have um, an adopted Calgarian, although uh, he's lived most of his life in Calgary. Uh, But a full disclosure, this guy, not often I'll say full disclosure, a friend of mine, he is that, uh, but one of the most influential people in my life. So it was a great honor for me to spend some time with him. Uh, Ken Babby is our guest. Uh, you may know Ken uh, as the head coach of our para hockey team uh, in or what used to be sledge hockey uh, as they're preparing for the 2020 Paralympics, 2022 Paralympics, pardon me. Um, prior to that, he is the winningest coach in ACAC men's hockey history, um, leading uh, state, the state Trojans for nearly three decades, um, is in the uh, Alberta Hockey Hall of Fame. And today, it being May 29th, if you're listening to this, the day it was dropped, this was supposed to be a very important day for him as well. And we'll get into that. Um, He is a a huge, as I said, a huge influence on me. I got to work for Ken for a couple of years in the mid-90s. Really kind of took me inside the game, showed me um, how to put a hockey team together. Uh, I learned a lot just being around him, and, and we have stayed very close friends ever since. And, and he's a guy that I count on for a, a lot of uh, mentorship. And I think you're going to find that in this program, in this uh, conversation. We get into the last dance and what he took from that um, documentary about Michael Jordan, and, and we talk about leadership. But uh, really an honor for me to spend some time with my good friend, Ken Babby. Uh, before we get there, not sure what sports are provided in our city. Sports, Sport Calgary's sport directory will help you find the sport and sport organization that's right for you. Visit sportcalgary.ca to learn more. Settle in, listen back, and, and enjoy. Here's uh, a little time with my friend, Ken Babby. So you do a lot of this? Are you guys using a lot of this technology? You know, we are. I just got off a... Uh two and a half hour uh, meetings with our players. So we're just doing uh, individual player meetings, just setting up uh, their programs for the summer and uh, things like that. We've been doing, I'll tell you what, I think I've done more work uh, virtually at this time of year than I usually do, you know, when the season kind of ends. And do you like it? And, huh? Well, we're, we're, we're using this, uh, this time uh, to uh, get better away from uh, the rink, so to speak. So we're doing a lot of work on um, mental performance, uh, virtual tech meetings, training, all that kind of stuff. Is it easy to do? Is it, have you had to change your approach? Have you had to tone or tenor or, you know, what's the key to being a, a, a successful coach in a virtual environment? Well, I'll tell you what, it's the uh, same old story. You got to lean on other people, right? And you got to uh, use the other people. And we have some great people around our program that uh, just are doing a tremendous job. I'm so proud uh, of the work we're doing behind the scenes, so to speak, right now in terms of 
just all that stuff, mental performance, training, whatever. The guys are really bought into it, and they've been working hard. I'm surprised how hard they've been working. And I think you have to be a little bit more patient, right? I think you have to be, you know, you have to be step back and listen a little bit more because you can't jump right into conversations. You have to use all the people you can, use all the resources, and work together. How much for, for the high-level athlete that you're working with right now, and I should point out, Ken, I hit record a long time ago, so we're into it, but uh, um, <laughs> how much of mental fatigue, grind, you know, the real world and all of those sort of things, how much of that comes into play in these conversations? Well, it's, uh, I think, yeah, I think it does. I mean, you have to recognize it, and we, we bring it up front. We, you know, I do a lot of things now where I just uh, call my players, call my staff, just out of the blue, just to check in, see what they're up to, see if they watched the last dance, episode seven, what they've been up to, you know, and just talk about things in general in life. And then uh, I think if we all realize where we're at and you have to recognize that some people are down some days, some people are hanging in there. But I think the distractions of our program have helped the guys yeah. deal with some of this, deal with some of this uh, being locked down, so to speak, because, they're doing dry land training on, on their sleds, like doing puck drills, things like that. Um, they, like I said, they've got a program they're working on. We took a couple weeks off in May, but we're using, using this time to close our space with the Americans. And uh, we don't know what they're up to, what the other countries are up to, but we feel this is a time where we can grow. And I, one more point I'll make. I found that it's really helped me as a coach develop those personal relationships with my players because I've had to reach out to them individually and we've had to talk to the staff individually and you start building, I think even tighter relationships in some ways. I think this has been good for our team. If I pass you in the hallway and you tell me, are you having a good day? I'm having a good day. We're good. Okay. I'll see you later. That's one thing. But if I'm on this call, I have to look at you. You have to look at me. You're, you're further engaged, right? From that standpoint. Yeah. I think that's the patience part. You have to stop and listen because it's not that smooth, as you just mentioned, as in real life, right? So I think that's a great point. And uh, so I've been working on that personally, improving that part of my coaching uh, skills, so to speak. And I think the players are, are doing a great job and the coaches are, are working together. And uh, we just feel that we're at a point right now that, like everybody else, we're getting anxious. We want to kind of get out there in life in general, but especially mm-hmm. in hockey, you know, uh, we know that Hockey Canada is closed up for the summer and we don't know whether we're going to be having our September showcase camp where we have our trials for the national team. We don't know if that's going to happen right now or not. It's, it's on the agenda that it is, but we're training as if it's going to happen. We don't know that. Unique for your team and, and maybe, well, I think unique for national teams that are not, um, that are not uh, centralized that, uh, you know, if, if an NHL team or a Western league team comes back, then we're all back in the same place. You do spend most of your season away from your players. Do you think you'll be using this technology and these types of things moving forward? That's great insight, Rob. You know, that's one of the things I said uh, to the coaches when we when this all first happened and I started getting used. Like we had a couple uh, virtual tech meetings where we had, you know, our video coach and he lined it all up and we walked it through and everybody was on watching. I thought, wow. So now we'll be able to do this through the season because now we've done this and we can do it. You know, we always probably could have done it, but we never really engaged in it, right? So yeah. I think yeah. we'll be doing more of this, and it's going to be great in a decentralized environment to uh, call up somebody and have a chat with them person to person. Have you? And, 
Oh, sorry to jump on you there, but one of the conversations that you and I've had, but we'll share on this podcast is not only are you the, you know, the head coach of para hockey, I, you got to remind me it was sledge. It was sled. And now it's para. para. What's that? Para national team. Para national team. You're also growing the sport, Ken. You're also have a responsibility to build the sport. Have you been able to do any of that during this pause? Yes, we have. We, we've uh, started a, well, we just, the guys just uh, finished up with our assistant coach, Mike Foligno, a, a dryland skills program that they did some uh, skills drills and they put them on video. We'll be releasing that in June. There'll be, our players will be doing it, but we're going to follow it through the system so that if there's any other para ice hockey players that are home for the summer and they want to get better at the sport, whether they're playing club or provincial teams or whatever, there's going to be an avenue to do that. We're working on a stride project where we're looking at analysis of what are the best skating techniques, kind of like back in the old days when we broke down skating, power skating, we broke it down. We're doing the same thing. We hope to transfer that into uh, the development of the game and the growth of the game. So there's a few things that we're doing. Uh, my main focus is the national team, but all of us have a responsibility to grow the sport in whatever way we can. So uh, we're, we're all working together to do some projects like that. Is the sport growing? Well, I thought it was growing until this uh, COVID business hit. And, uh, you know, I think I think everybody's like, you know, what's it going to be? What's the future going to look like? And uh, are kids going to be able to go back, get in their sleds and, and do the sport? And uh, But I think it was growing. I know that when we travel around the provinces, there's club teams everywhere we go. And we find out, wow, there's a team here. There's a program here. And we go even in, in Europe now, we go travel to Europe. We find like there's it's it's a dynamic growing sport in some of those uh, countries. Does it is it up to the standards of Canada, USA? No, it's not. But that's another area that we have to, in terms of growing the sport, we do. We have to grow the sport internationally too. It's kind of like women's hockey. We yeah. Canada, and you know how the women's program in the last few years has American women's program has made an outreach into the Europeans to bring them up, so to speak and bring their skill levels up, and we've got to do the same thing in our sport. Well, a couple of di- – but two things. One one little argument I'd like to pick with you about that is that unlike the women's game, para hockey does have a bit of a legacy of other powerhouse. The Norwegians were really good at one point, right? The right. The, the Japanese right. have been good. It, it's not like the women that, that the two countries need to bring – raise the water you do need to raise the water but there at least is a legacy out there right oh for sure and uh norway was a powerhouse for years and you're right japan beat canada in 2010 in the uh, semifinals in the in the paralympics in vancouver um so what's happened though is that the americans and canadians we we we've taken the game to a whole other level in terms of speed in terms of conditioning full-time athletes so to speak mm-hmm. and other countries still are kind of at that little bit of a recreational phase, kind of where we started about maybe six, seven years ago. Now we've bumped it up. And so they're just going to catch up again. The, the other point, and I hope you will appreciate this, you would be the second guest on this podcast, maybe the third guest, that I can directly tie to the Claire Drake, Dave King, George Kingston tree. Claire Drake, and, the, and you know what I'm talking about, yeah. really the first coaches that said, no, let's share. Let's get together. 
let's share, let's make everybody else better. There's, there's a, an important part to that. And that legacy, I think, still lives through you because I know you're, you know, you're a disciple of Dave King and, and that. And it's, it's got to be a little bit kind of interesting to now carry on that torch a bit. Well, it's an honor to even uh, uh, to be uh, what I learned from all those gentlemen, especially Dave and uh, Claire Drake and George Kingston, too, in his time in Calgary and his time with the national programs. Those men, as you mentioned, were just such leaders and they had such um, uh, creative minds. They didn't just think of uh, the game from a uh, base level. They always thought of new ways of doing things. And Claire Drake was uh, the godfather of all of them, from my perspective, and he's like our John Wooden of, yeah. of hockey in Canada. That's how I see them. And uh, yes, and uh, their legacy is a legacy about sharing and trying to get better. Every day, trying to get better as a coach, trying to think of new ways you can play the game, new ideas to share with people and, and going and trying them out. I mean, Dave King, I thought, was a great uh, strategy man. He had great ideas, but he wasn't afraid to go try something. And that was, uh, and I think that's the one lesson that I learned from from those coaches that it's good to try things. Don't be stuck in the box. Yeah, it's easier to play defensive hockey and box it out one, two, two, and all that stuff. Explore the game a little bit. As, as we're having this conversation, you of course are wearing the Team Canada jacket. You are the coach of a Team Canada team. You work for Hockey Canada. Might be a little awkward question, but those guys grew up kind of building it by themselves. And Hockey Canada played that role. Your number one rival, the U.S., Ken, you've watched USA Hockey from afar. Can you just talk about their importance in the game now and, and what they bring and, and how that has impacted you? Well, they, they, uh, they, they bring a strong competitor. Right. I mean, uh, that's, what, that's, what, that's when I think of the Americans in our sport and in hockey in general, but in our sport specifically – they're a strong competitor. Um, they've proven to us that we can never um, give them an inch because they'll take it. And uh, that's the lessons we're learning. And uh, we're t- we feel we're on a path that we're going to uh, be able to win those one goal games moving down the road here. But they give us a strong sense of competition. And I think many of our athletes on our team are um, driven by the fact they want to beat them. Yeah. They want to beat them. We're the underdogs in this situation, right? Because they're they're the they're the number one team right now, and we're the underdogs, and we're going to embrace that. And we feel if we stay on our path, uh, and that's why we're doing so much work during this COVID situation, is that we feel it's an opportunity to get our fitness in line, to work on some things that we wouldn't on otherwise. This has forced us to do it, and it looked like it might be a blessing. Well, it, 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 this is a long way for. I feel like I'm trying to win an argument. I don't. I'm not winning an argument with you, but I have a really neat story to tie this into a, a little bow. My point about Claire Drake and Dave King, they shared. The, they they created the the conferences and they did. And the biggest benefactor out of that had to be the Americans. Had to be the Americans. And that's why I'm saying when I look at the women's game, I look at your game. It will work. It won't work tomorrow, but it will work in the decades to come. It will work. And you won't remember this, but in 1996, I remember when the U.S. beat Canada at the World Cup, we played that night when I was working for you. We came back after, saw the result, and you said right then the world had changed. You said that watch out, the Americans are back, and they're going, we had a coach, we had one of our coaches was working for Hockey Canada, he was at that tournament. But I'll never forget, kind of shock of, 
What do you mean the Americans beat the Canadians of the World Cup? That that couldn't happen. But that was 1996, and here we are, whatever, I guess, 24 years later, and it did, you were right, it had an impact. Well, and it's, uh, and everybody's uh, in those days, and, and even today, are trying to catch Canada, right? Yep, so sure. We share, we share everything. This is my problem, another problem with sharing, but it's a slippery slope, right? Because you're in high performance. Yep. My job as the national team coach is to deliver medals. That's right. right. That's 100%. High, perform- 100%. high performance coach, right? Yep. And, you know, if you get in the gold medal game and you lose in overtime, okay, you gave it your best shot, good. But if you're not in those gold medal games, then they take a look at you as a coach and as a program, right? Fortunately, we've been able to do that. But when we go out and share, when we go to coaches' conferences, when we go to Europe and go to tournaments and we share our stuff, well, they're taking that to get them better and then – they start to catch up, right? So you always that's why we always got to stay ahead of it. Absolutely. Back to Dave King and those guys. Yeah, they may have caught up, but then in their their days, they always said, "Okay, we got to find something else. How better can we do it?" You never settled. Well, and and I don't want to ruin a myth or or the image, but those guys were also taking from the people that they were sharing with. Right. They they were so open minded. It was not about dictation and thou shalt. It's like, what can I get from you, too? Right. And uh, another great coach. And uh, and uh, he's he's, uh, I guess, so to speak, my boss. And I'm not just saying it because he is. But Tom Rennie. Yep. Uh, when I ran to Tom Rennie, as you know, in the 90s, you were around yep. us. And I used to go push pucks for those guys when they had the national program at Father Bauer him and Mike Johnson. And. They would invite you in, they would share ideas, they'd say, we're doing this, we do this. They'd put the board down and say, hey, you know, you got a good breakout drill or something, and you just start drawing drills. And I just thought, wow, this is this is how you do it, man. This is how you, how you work together as coaches. This is how you get new ideas on doing things. But again, from that tree, right? Wayne Fleming, from that tree. Ken Babby, yeah. from yeah. that tree, right? You guys are all, and the, yeah. the influence that you've had on young coaches, again, from that tree, which... I just think is is amazing. Um, sent you just dropped in there about ten minutes ago. The Last Dance. Did you? Yes. Did you watch that? Oh, I love that. From series. start to finish. Start to finish. So I'm not. I, so we could have a little chat about that because uh, you were I a guy. On it. <laughs> you you were a guy that I thought. You know what's crazy though, Coach? I didn't watch it right away. I thought, well, uh, yeah, you know, I. Eh. And then I watched it, and the first ten minutes, I was hooked. Um, from from things that I learned from you about leadership, about team. Safe to say, I would not take that documentary to a bunch of 10- and 11-year-old kids and go, that's how you lead, kids. <laughs> no. But but it was amazing, wasn't it? Um, the, the drive to win, the sacrifices, uh, you know, all of those sort of things. It was a fascinating insight that I, I was not expecting. Yeah, me either. And, uh, you know, basketball, uh, I've never really been a strong NBA basketball fan. I catch it sometimes in the playoffs and, and I appreciate the sport and all that, yeah, but, yeah. you know, yeah, but anyways, I, I just got in, I just, just got into the whole backroom scenes of what Jordan was doing, like with his own life and how he's pushing himself it was just a great example to me of, um, of a, of a, of an athlete that's highly skilled, obviously, but how he had to always reinvent himself. I mean, there's a couple stories there that, I, and you know, I, I bounced this out to my players on WhatsApp. Said here, 
because uh, my son sent it to me. TJ sent it to me, Victoria, and he said, Dad, you got to watch this. So I started watching. It was great. So I bumped it out to the players, and they started watching it. And, you know, what we started doing, we started talking about, okay, what, what part do you like? Why do you like that part? We started kicking around the ideas, and I think it's a great master's class in um, leadership and uh, pushing yourself to be the best you be. I love when Jordan, like the first time he uh, – in 93, when they were trying to beat the Pistons and he was he was too, uh, they were beating him up physically, he went back, said, I got to put on 15 pounds, put on 15 pounds of muscles. And the next year they they won, right? And then he went on his uh, leave of absence to go play baseball, came back, had to reinvent himself again. Reggie Miller and Malone were beating him. So he had to get, he said he had to get better shape. So he just kept pushing himself. Yeah. And how? How I like the way he brought in the cast of characters around, like Pippin and Rodman. He didn't judge them. He, he he embraced them, and he just he challenged them too. But only if they bought in. But yeah. only if they had to buy in, right? There couldn't be any no. passengers. No. Right. And that was great leadership. Yeah. And and you know, Robin, whatever sport that's a team sport. At the end of the day, the coaches are a factor, but it's really about. What leaders do you have in a room and how are they leading the team? And uh, I, I just think that uh, it was a great example of leadership inside the locker room and then coaching and what they were supported by, but just a beautiful story. Have you been around athletes that that needed that whole concept of you made the list or you may, you know, he, he didn't talk to me at dinner, so now I'm going to show him or, you know, he said something to me. Like that whole story about the young guy from Washington that, beaked him maybe maybe said yeah. something to him on the way off the court and then he goes off the next game have you been around yeah. athletes like that that use that tool well i think i think we've had i know we've had it at state and I, I think we have a couple guys in our roster that do the same thing and that's the learning point he even if he he was resilient even if he for jordan even if he got beat or they trashed him or whatever he was going to show them back like you know if they Stole a ball off him. He was coming back to show him not doing that again. Yeah. The guy beeped him. Same thing. Like he always wanted to bump it up, show everybody he was the best guy. Yeah, it's it's funny, right? Like it the post mortem of it. There's a lot of second guessing and looking back, and and it's not a documentary. It's his. I think they're missing the point. To mm-hmm. me, it was let him speak his own words. We'll let him. He's not a. There's times he's not a nice guy, Ken. There's times oh, yeah. he's not a nice guy. And there's times where you as a coach or your captain just couldn't be nice guys. Well, you can't be. I mean, uh, I think you have to hold your guys accountable. And sometimes you have to challenge them in, in a fair but firm way. You have to. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part that's part of coaching. Certainly it's part about being a head coach. There has to be a line of your – you have to hold your line on certain principles – uh, the expectations you have for them, I and mean, they're not meeting them, you have to find a way to get them off over the edge. And sometimes you gotta, sometimes you gotta tell pretty directly. And I think, I think that's what good leaders do. How much? What did you draw from watching Phil Jackson through this, and how he was depicted? I, well, they didn't do as much as I wanted to on Jackson. I read Jackson's books yep. and uh, and stuff like that. I love his principles. I, I just thought that he, he. For me, there's two kinds of leadership in your dressing room. There's soft leadership where coaches have to come in and provide a little bit more kick in the ass or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Yep. And then you've got your hard leaders in the room. So 
You got Jordan. You got Mark Messier, like the bowl guys in the room. I think Jackson was great for that team because he was he could he kind of let the personalities go about themselves and be organic about how they got together. But yet he kind of directed them softly around them, you know? I thought of you directly at the end in episode 10 when Steve Kerr talked about um, Jackson bringing everybody in and write down what this team meant to you, and then they burnt it in a, in a coffee can. For whatever reason, I just thought that's a Ken Babby thing. That I would have, there, you know, not necessarily that exact thing, but that had a feel for you. What did you make of that particular sequence? I think that was so cool. Um, I love the message in it, and, and uh, that that was uh, kind of a way to memorialize what they had done and what they felt about it. But now they're moving on. Yeah. Right. Like. Yep. Right. We won a championship. Yeah. Now it's it's done. It's over with, right? Yeah, yeah. You can't live on your laurels, so to speak, right? I love that part. But I love that he wanted to let them have the moment and what it meant to them. Yeah, and share that, right? Yeah. It's funny as I think more and more about it. Um, you spent so much of your time at Sate, and were you know obviously the most successful coach in in the history of that league. Um, the Jordan rules would really apply to your players, wouldn't it? Because you would get players with pretty good pedigrees that just didn't want to work anymore, that Jordan would have run off the team, and then you would have got a whole bunch of kids that didn't have the same pedigree but would have done the things that Jordan would have done because they wanted to be successful. Like, you really didn't have any middle ground there. You had either the ones that were, you know, not quite invested or were just overachievers. Yeah, and you know what? That's just the nature of the athlete we were dealing with, right? Most of the guys were – Graduates of junior hockey, most were, you know, you had some higher-end WHL guys, but the question with them was, did they still want to participate and compete? And were they prepared to be teammates of guys that weren't from their level? So you had that to deal with, and you had the junior guys. The junior A guys were probably our best guys, Mm -hmm. and the junior B guys that wanted to prove that they could still play the game at a high level, and you just had to fight had to find the right combinations of players. And at St. as you know, Rob, we were all about one thing. Work ethic was number one and respect for the game. Yes, we were known as a physical team and things like that, but we had respect for the game and uh, started with practicing hard, playing hard, and respecting the rules of the game. One last one on Last Dance, and and I'll morph into something else. Kind of shocking in in 10 episodes – didn't not once did he ever bitch or moan about officiating. Did you notice that? No, never once. And I'm sure he did in game. I'm not saying in game, but at, there was never this you know segment of oh they got me or they screwed me here. To your point about the Pistons, that would have been a real easy one to say. You know, we hear that all the time in the NHL. Oh, they're beating this kid up. They got a, the NHL's got to step. There was never a conversation about the NBA's got to step in and protect Jordan. Jordan went around and fixed it. He took care of it himself, yeah. right? Which I thought was a yeah, fascinating part. Well, that, that was especially shown in the, um, in the in the series when he was young and he played Detroit Pistons, and they were a big brawling team, and they basically beat him up, and they were they were following him. Jordan rules, right? Yeah, and and he wasn't getting calls, so he did. I remember they said he said I got to put on some muscle, and just be able to fight back and push these guys back. And he went and put on fifteen pounds, and uh, I think you know that's just a testament to him. He always found a way. To get around the barrier, right? Yeah. He didn't use it as an excuse. Yeah. 
and loved it, loved it when Pippen wasn't going to play. And he said, okay, they're all looking what he's going to say. He said, it's going to be on me. Yeah. I'll take care. I'll take care of this. Yeah. Right. So it was awesome. Pippen was an interesting character in that film too. Pippen yeah, was, he was. You know, really interesting, especially that one where he, he didn't want it. He was going to go to Ku coach. So I'm not going to, I'm not going out. And then, yeah. and then to come back and say, I wouldn't have changed a thing. Right. Yeah. I different strokes for different folks. <laughs> yes, <I don't> know. <laughs> My guess is it's just a guess that the next couple of years you go to coaching conferences, you're going to see lots of clips from that documentary. <laughs> oh yeah. You're right. Will be. Everybody's on this like crazy right now. Like I'm, I'm attending these coaching seminars virtually too, as we uh, through the spring and, uh, I've just noticed here a couple of things coming up next week where guys are talking about it and stuff like that. So it'd be interesting to see what other people's thoughts on it. But I, I think it's just a great documentary uh, about sport. I love the background scenes. I just love all that stuff. Yeah, I do. I, I just, I caution the parent out there who thinks, oh, I got to, you know, my nine-year-old needs to watch. No, this. no, 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 you don't need to punch Steve Kerr in the chest or anything no, like that. No, 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 I think we're good. Um, how is the, I've asked you this a number of times, but I want to check in on this one again. How has the, the player changed over your tenure? You know, you started off as a player yourself, and then you got into coaching at the midget level, and then all those years in college, and, and you, you were internationally, you've been around. Now you're, you know, with a, a para-athlete. How has the, the player changed in your tenure as a coach? Well, I think they're... I think that um, you have to include them more. You have to include, be more inclusive in the things that you're doing with your team, the things that uh, you're planning on doing, get ideas from them. Um, it's way more about that. I mean, we, I have had, I've been, what, three, end of my fourth decade in coaching. So you, know, you have to change so many times along the way. And if you don't adapt, you're not going to stay in the game, right? Right. You're not going to have success in the game. Right. So I've had to adapt a bunch of times, but I would say I think they're a little bit um, more. I don't know. Not. I don't know if the word's smarter, but not so much smart hockey, but just they're more wise about what what they can and can't do, and you you can and can't do with them, right? So you have to include them. You have to be more inclusive. You have to encourage them from that aspect can't be as hard and rough on them as it used to be you know you can't you can't can't do that and you know we were we were trained that way many of us and we were probably uh wrong in doing some of the things we did we weren't doing it out of malice i think we're doing because we thought that was the way to do things and i think you just have to change your approaches and and uh be a little more patient be a little quieter and let them speak more and be more involved in the process and include your coaches at all aspects and I really learned to delegate a lot of responsibilities. I got such a great staff. And, you know, in my days at SAG, you didn't have much. You had a part-time assistant coach running from work to get there. And, you know, you had to do it all. But now I'm blessed with a, a great staff and I'm able to delegate and use them. So um, I think that's the biggest thing. Use the people around you and let the players have an involvement. We're, we're even getting to a point now where we say, okay, guys, I want you to plan uh, three stations to run tomorrow in practice and, our, our key guys meet with the guys and they go come up with three drills they're going to run and let it go. And the pace of practice, the purpose of practice is way better because they feel so much more engaged. I, I, it's funny you said you have to quiet down, like you can't be as loud. Um, that used to be a co- coaching tool, right? Volume. Like, oh, yeah. There's a lot of really bad coaches that just use volume. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
and that was that was the old style of coaching, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, and it, it, you can't do that now. There's no way you can do that. And, and maybe, and you know what? I don't think we should have even then, but that's the way it was. But um, I think coaching's evolved. Coaching has become such a science, just like the game has become such a science over the years. You know, coaches have just got so much training now, so much information, and the game's evolved because of that. And I think um, the art of coaching is more about your personal relationships with people. Yeah, which is funny. That's how we started this conversation, right? Talking about the technology yeah. and, and, and having to adapt to it. So just exactly. kind of underlines that. Um, what, you know this. You're not that far removed from the college athlete um, and you, I'm sure attending coaching conferences, you hear the same thing I am. The kids are great, but we as parents, we're not letting them fail. And, and as a result, they're not as resilient. Y- you work with a team that every single one of those guys is resilient. Every single one of those guys has, has had to overcome. What could, our, what could young players, what could um, hockey players learn from your players, Ken? Well, I think they can learn that um... – it doesn't come easy. You got to work at it away from the game and in the game. And that, you know what? Try things, make mistakes. It's the only way you're going to get better. And uh, I think you're right. I think, I think because everybody's looking for the perfect and this players, they feel that you may not say that to them, but their parents give them that impression. Right. And they've got skills coaches, they've got skating coaches, they've got all this thing. And so I think we just got to let them fail a little bit and go for things and don't be, don't, I think it actually comes from Jordan. Jordan said in the thing, I think he said something like, I didn't worry about uh, not making the next shot. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't worry about to not taking, I didn't worry about, I didn't worry about anything. I was taking a shot, man. I mean, he said something about that, something. I thought, oh, that's a good insight. He didn't, he didn't put pressure on himself. He just took the shot. Well, I think what he said is, why should I be afraid of missing it? Why, yeah, why would right. I be, why would I be afraid of missing it? Right. I haven't well. taken it yet. Well. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think kids get so tightened up that they feel, Oh man, you know, so then loosen up, just let it play, like play hard and focus and all that. But Hey, take the shot, make the pass, just play the game. I don't know. So I'm going to ask, do you at the national level, do, is there any relationship between you and the parents? I mean, are these, yeah. are your athletes? No, not, no. We have some young players, though. We've got some young guys in the program. But, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, it's, it's not the same as you would go to the ranks, even, um, you know, at the um, – uh, no, it's not at all. We, we don't – we see them, we talk with them, but there's no involvement with them. Yeah. Well, just yeah. – I was just wondering because in some cases, you know, growing up with a disability or something like that, the parents tend to be more involved or, or could be more involved. Uh, um you know, I know through our superheroes program, working with with kids with cognitive challenges, that you know, in many cases, the parents are very involved. But hockey's almost a release for them because they get to sit back and be hockey parents, right? You know. Yeah, and, and our hockey parents are like any other hockey parents, and I think that <laughs> you know, with some of our young kids, when we first brought them into the program, the parents were around a little bit because they had to. We had one guy started was fourteen; he's now seventeen or eighteen. But I mean, um, the first while they come around a bit but they see they're in good hands they see they're treated well hot canada's everything first class hmm. we're in collaboration with them if they're under 18 on every decision they have to sign off on it and uh then they can just move back and be a fan so to speak so it's great from that perspective and you know we go to world championships you'll see all the parents just like you see in world juniors 
up in the stands with their Canada jerseys on. There might not be 20,000 of them, but it sounds like there's 20,000. Sure. That's awesome. Uh, he's Ken Babby, our guest here on the original Six Feet Conversation podcast. Want the latest Sport Calgary updates one place? Sign up for Sport Calgary's newsletter. For the latest monthly updates sent straight to your inbox, sign up at sportcalgary.ca. Uh, as the kids say, Coach, this podcast is dropping on May 29th. Do you know what the significance of May 29th is? Not off the top. Tell me. What are you supposed to be doing today? You are supposed to be being honored by uh, the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, oh, you mean that. Oh, that little thing. Um, you are uh, be, you are unhonored now. I guess, unless they told you differently, I mean, there's no ceremony tonight, but you are now an honored member of the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame. I guess so. I'm very honored by that. I I honestly had forgotten about it since I got got the note that all the ceremonies in that council, not that I had forgot about the honor, but I just, yeah, the date didn't strike me, but... Yeah, it's just uh, just an honor to be even uh, considered in the realm of some of the people that are there going in with me and others that have been in the past. And I guess for me, I, I just feel I'm a face of uh, a, the work of a bunch of people over my coaching career that uh, made me look good. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Well, we'll go with that. Um, to me, and, and one of the disappointments was I was going to be the MC for that event as well, which would have kept up that chain of, I would have been the MC for most of your Hall of Fame inductions because you're also in the Alberta Hockey Hall of Fame as well. Um, nobody enters sport with that in mind. Nobody's goal is to go into the Hall of Fame. But what do recognitions like that mean at this time for you? Well, uh, I mean, besides being honored about it, it just, it just means that when you look back on your career, so to speak, you think, wow, you know, I must have had some positive impact. Yeah. on people and the sport, I guess. Um, and I'm very proud about that because I got into this whole business about coaching was originally to help kids uh, play hockey. They were looking for a coach. And so I jumped in and started helping. I started teaching at that time, and it just it just grew from there. And the biggest, the biggest uh, for me at, um, back in the day was when I got the job at SATE, I was just so honored to be a college coach and phys ed teacher there that – I never left there because it was just, you know, it was just a perfect fit. And people always ask me, well, why do you do this? Why do you? And I sniffed around the things I did, right? Sure. And I got Mohawk Canada, which gave me another little avenue and made me a way better coach. But I don't know, for, for us and our family and our lifetime and what I was doing and helping guys, uh, I felt I was successful in the sense of I felt, Robbie, at our time at State that we maybe had a small piece in some, some of the guys that we know now that have grown up be successful men, have families of their own, contributing to society in a positive way. And I just feel that we recruited them. They didn't know what the heck they were doing. Some of them didn't even know what program they wanted. We got them in through the door through hockey. And they uh, we had some involvement and had them having a positive life. And I'm just proud about that aspect. The wins and losses, that's one thing, and the championships. But I thought we, we did a good job of building guys into good people. Well, and that's, to me, that's where your strength has always been, is that you were way ahead of the curve. Um, It's funny. I I think of things like the Good Deeds Cup and teams adopting other teams and giving back to the community, which are so important. 
um, but they feel new, except they weren't because you were doing them in the 90s. That was, you know, Adopt a Trojan and The Pillars and, and all of those things that, uh, you know, originally when I heard about them, well, that's kind of quirky. That's different. Okay, what does that mean? Only to find out that the rest of the game fell into place. And there was others doing it. Don't get me wrong, but no, not, yeah. on, not on the level that it happens now. But you were doing it back in the 90s. That was, it was just as important to be a good person as to be a good hockey player. Well, that's right, Rob. Remember, our number one principle in our team, our pillars, were about team being a good citizen. Yeah. And, you know, if guys weren't good citizens, you know, we... We understood that you're coming to college, there's a partying aspect, all this stuff. But, you know, they, we, we expected them to be good ambassadors. And so there came a point that they had to uh, fulfill that or else we would, wouldn't keep them around. But our program was based on the idea that we could help these guys be better men by showing them some leadership skills in the community. And remember how we used to do those practices for the kids and how our guys would come back? I always remember how they'd come back after running a practice a bunch of kids and we go run our practice the next day and the tempo would be up the guys would be spirited because they felt important again they felt felt wanted yeah because we were dealing with a lot of guys whl guys and that that weren't wanted anymore right that's right and this gave them a new purpose so to speak and it gave them i thought i thought it, i thought it was a i thought it was a key to us turning our you know uh talk about this covid curve it, it took our program up there now. We started to get guys going in the right direction. Well, admittedly, it was really the first high-end program that I was exposed to, but it was also the first time I was exposed to team building, care, um, culture, that mm. actual things were done to to address that. I was so used to what I felt was, well, if it didn't work, we'll move him out, we'll bring him in sort of thing, right? Win at all costs, like, you know, yelling at we screaming and, and all of that sort of thing. It, it, that was the, and I remember the first time I ever saw team building, a mutual friend of ours, Mark Maloney, was doing, I think, trust falls or something like that. Yeah. And it was like, <laughs> what are we doing here? It Yet that becomes this billion-dollar business, right? Like yeah. it, it was, yeah, yeah. upon looking back, you were doing things in the 90s that are now, now in some cases, becoming commonplace. Well, it's all commonplace now. That's uh, you got little novice teams doing all that stuff, and it's great. It's great. It's evolved, right? Yeah. But, but well, we you know we were up, we were challenged against some good teams with high talented teams. So our approach was, hmm, how are we going to beat those teams? Well, we're going to have to be a solid, tough team to play against. You have to have a team concept. So our whole principles were about being a team, and nobody was above the team. And uh, that's how we were able to and beat you, the you let people, you let players go on that, Ken. Like it should Definitely. be known that 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 was not negotiable. That was one of the. That's where you talked about. You had to step in as a head coach. That was a line in the sand. Like if you weren't a good teammate and sharing with your team and being um, um, don't having not having a big ego, you couldn't be part of our program. And I think that that's what the essence of our program was about. What were your peers saying at that point? What were what were other coaches? I mean, were you getting people inquiring what were you doing, or were you getting some raised eyebrows when you were doing that? Well, to be quite honest, a lot of people were saying, "Well, they got the best players." Uh, when we were, we went on those runs for a number of years there, and we were winning pretty consistently, and uh, they were saying that we were cheating, we were giving guys money under the table. There's all kinds of things. But the smart coaches, they were saying, what are you guys doing there? What are you working on? What are you doing? And yeah. we would share, I would share that, as you know, because I used to do Hockey Alberta coaches. Absolutely, college. yeah. 
one book. Here's our power play system. Here's our here's our forecheck. Here's what we do to build a team season plan. Here's our uh, team building activities. We sh I shared all that just like I was I was taught in my day from from those guys we talked about Claire Drake and Kingston and King. But that's what we are doing. So you know, anytime you have success, you're going to be people pick you apart. But the smart ones trying to figure out, ask questions about what you're doing, and then they can learn from you. So you grew up in and around Saskatoon, right? Saskatoon, yeah. Were you were you an early hockey adopter, or did, when did you when did the game find you? Uh, as soon as I could walk, probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, hockey was my uh, biggest love, and I played it like all kids did in those days, and, and not as much now. We played it on the ice, off the ice, in our basements, every way we could, we did. That's all I could do in Saskatoon. Played hockey, hockey, played some ball in the summer, things like that. But hockey was my love. And when I realized it was too slow to go anywhere, I uh, made a decision I want to keep in the game. Um, and I got a call in Saskatoon if I want to coach a Bantam team. And I, I was going to university, and so I did. And that's got me going and coaching. Well, okay, but you were, as slow as you think you were, you were at some level a pretty good player as a youngster, I mean, you had to make a determination because you did play at the university level, did you not? Yeah. Yeah, so you must, you were pretty good at, at in your teens, right? Uh, yeah. Not bad. <laughs> not bad. Did you, did you make it, did you ever have to choose or make a determination, leave home or anything like that? Did you ever have to make that early oh, hockey? Yeah, I, I, uh, I left home and tried to chase it, um, you know, like all guys do, 17, 18, et cetera, and when I recognized I wasn't going to, uh, I was on the back of a paver in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, paving. And um, we used to have to get up at 5 a.m. and pave till um, 10 at night. And anyways, I thought, you know what? I don't know if I want to keep doing this paving highways and 100 above in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, and the bugs and, and the yeah. mosquitoes. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Ah, you know, I'm going to try something else. So that's why I enrolled at the University of Saskatchewan. And uh that's when I started getting involved, and uh, and the best times I ever had was uh, was when I was a kid playing because we just played for fun, yeah. so much fun, and uh, yeah, and I, and I just loved it, and um, so I just couldn't see myself without getting involved in it somehow when I was done playing. You played at U of S though, didn't you? Yeah, I played with the, I played uh, there one year until I uh, broke my shoulder and uh, couldn't play anymore, and that's when I started uh, getting into my education degree and yeah. focus on yeah. teaching, and then. Uh, like I said, I got into coaching through that. Was it is that where you met Dave King? Dave King, I played for before that at Saskin Junior Quakers. Okay. When he was just starting out as a coach, he was probably in his early 30s there, and he was our coach of a junior B team called Saskin Junior Quakers. Yeah. What what was what was an, a young Dave King like? I mean, we all know what he became, but what what was he like as a coach back then? Well, he was very sharp, very sharp-minded, and uh, he was a young coach that had uh, a lot of ideas. He was an intense guy. He was a very intense coach, and uh, he liked perfection, and yeah. uh, and he was successful then, too. We won championships in the North Saskatchewan Junior League, and uh, he was a successful coach, and I remember playing for him, and then I wasn't surprised when later on, he went through and uh, went up the ranks and got Hockey Canada and did such a great job there. And then Calgary Flames and his whole coaching career. I mean, he's not surprised at all. I think that is that safe to say one of the misconceptions of Dave King is that, you know, we see Dave King and he's such a 
an inviting, easygoing interview guy, but he was a pretty intense coach. Like, he wasn't to be messed around with, right? In his younger days, when I played for him, he was a very, very intense, but he was a good coach. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he was perfect. For but not a pushover. No, no. No, no. Yeah. No, no. No, no. Yeah. But he had, he had great ideas, you know. His concepts, uh, even back then, he was a football coach, too, at, at Aiden Bowman High School when he was coaching uh, us in junior hockey. And uh, he had some interesting ideas, like uh, some of the skating routes on breakouts were like having a wide receiver type thing split. It was, it was kind of unique at the time, and uh, that's what I mean. Like, he was creative, and he tried things. It's you. Funny you bring that. Up. I did not know that about Dave that he was uh, that he 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 had dabbled in football because Jim Donlevy, who uh, we both know and and he, yeah. I mean he had a great legacy in both sports. Was a football coach at the university level, but had a lasting impact in hockey. Back then, two sports, right? Multi sports. Guys were able to go from one to the other. Oh yeah, absolutely, and. Uh... Yeah, Dave was a football coach, and uh, he was a phys ed teacher at Aiden Bowen High School, and uh, he was successful there too in his football coaching. So, I mean, he was he was a coach, and uh, he did a good job of it. And uh, you know, back in those days, I mean, that's the seventies. Things are different, right? Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. So your first coaching gig was Bantams in Saskatoon. Yeah, I think it was yeah Bantam uh, Bantam slash Midget team uh, in those days. And, um, yeah, it was my first coaching gig, and uh, we had a pretty good season, and we had some fun. And then I moved to Calgary in 1980 um, after I graduated from U of S, and I came to Calgary. And I got a job uh, working in special education with uh, behavior problem kids, um, and uh, that was at um, Fairview High School. And I, you know, I, I don't know if I coached the first year here when I got here, but the next year I did. I started coaching in the Northeast sector uh, and as an assistant coach with uh, in a minor, in a major Bantam program. I guess they call it AAA Bantam. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I just kept going that and I got into coaching some teams on my own and then just going, going up the ranks. And then um, State was looking for an assistant coach and Tom Aloy was the coach then. And uh, I signed up for that. And then they opened up the door for a full-time job and I applied for it and won the job. And that's when I got into my full-fledged coaching career was that. As the rest, as they say, is history with the old, <laughs> with the old green and yellow Trojans, we should point out too, correct? That was the first year we were the green and yellow Trojans. And uh, then I think the second year we were the Calgary Flames Trojans. Flames Colors. Yeah, and then about mid-90s, we went to the uh, Detroit Red Wing colors because Sate had brand changed its colors to red and white. Right, right. And so that's 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 the iconic colors. Those are the iconic colors, yeah. How did, I've never asked you this, how did your time as a special needs teacher impact you, Ken? Because back in the 80s, that was, you know, that was tough sledding then, right? There wasn't a lot of resources and wasn't a lot of, support, I guess, for lack of a better term, that, that must've been, you know, a very challenging position. It it was, and, uh, it was very rewarding at the same time because, um, I was working uh, with, uh, kids for the most part that had been abused. And most of these kids, when they're acting out, they're acting out for a reason. 
and most of them have come from abusive backgrounds. <clears throat> and in my final five or six years, I was at Woods uh, Woods Homes, which is a, yeah. um, a, a pretty famous place in Calgary to do adolescent treatment and things like that. And they do amazing things there. And I worked at the school there. And um, it just taught me the importance of being patient and um, treating each, each player, each athlete, and I apply this to my players later, with their own individual plan. You have a team plan, like we all have to get here, but each guy is different. And I had to learn, you can't blanket everything. You have to treat each guy a little bit individually and set a separate kind of, uh, you know, you're dealing with in you know, special ed kids, you have to develop, um, they call them IPPs, individual performance plans. And you change them on a monthly basis, whatever, as kids get better. So we started, I started applying that with my players where, each guy was an individual, but within the collective group. So um, it just helped me understand everybody's an individual and don't prejudge anybody because you don't know what they've gone through. Right. You don't know what they've, what's, what's made them act this way before you jump on them. Maybe think about, hey, why is the guy doing that? Like, is, does he just want to do that? And then you try and work with them. I mean, you know, and we, as you know, Rob, we used to have a three strike rule at state yep. and work with them. And then if they, you know, there comes a point though that they can't, they can't disrupt the whole team and the program, right? So, anyways, it was it was interesting to learn how to give people second, third chances, I guess. Right, which is kind of a common theme for you, uh, because okay, so you're that's your day job, then you're coaching. Meanwhile, you're starting a young family in Calgary. But if I also remember your history well, you were foster parents too, weren't you? Yeah, Debbie. Uh... Debbie uh, did the brunt of that, and uh, she uh, she had this idea that we should help out uh, kids that are having troubles uh, in their families, and uh, we started fostering. I think we fostered for about ten years there. We brought ki- we brought kids into our home, and uh, probably how we how we all got how we got started in this on Christmas Eve, um, we had just put our names into this agency Debbie had found, and we had researched and we had interviewed with. And um, they called us on New Year's Eve, uh, Christmas Eve, and they said, uh, can you take three little girls? What? Three little girls? Christmas Eve. They said, yeah, well, their mom has just uh, died of an overdose. Uh, There's two little girls. One's two years old. One's about six. And then there's an older girl, about 12. We took them in on on Christmas Eve. They stayed with us for about, uh, the littlest one stayed for a few weeks until they could find a placement over the holidays. Second one, she stayed a few months, and the older girl, she stayed with us a year. Anyways, that was the start of our involvement in um, foster parenting. What What was that experience? I mean, coaching is one thing, but that's life experience. What? How did that impact you, Ken? Well, I, I think it was uh, it was really good for our kids. I think it was really good for our kids because they had to learn to accept accept different people. Mm-hmm. And they had to learn that, and I think it was good for them. And um, also, it added a new a new dynamic, and which I think my wife Debbie has to be recognized for is that you have to give back. You have to give back to people. You have to give back. Be kind. Give back, and um, we all have something to offer. So I think that was a growth experience. But she did most of the work, as as you know, I was at practice or on the road on a bus. <laughs> Well, there's that being of service again, right? Being of service, service as a family and being of service as a hockey player and as a team. So it's, it, it kind of 
makes sense, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what, that's what leadership is. You're serving, right? You're right. serving. Yeah. Serving from the back of the bus is as important as from the front of the bus. I think it's more important. And you know, the best way to lead is by example. So if you're telling the guys to pick up the garbage on the floor, they should see you picking up the garbage on the floor. If you're telling them to work hard. You should be working hard. Like it just goes by your role to service, service, uh, your students, your athletes, your family, the community. You not should not could you should write a book about your time at Safe. Um, there are things there, and I was there briefly. You were there a lot, obviously longer than I was. The things that you must have seen, the things and the people that you did, and um, I don't even know where to begin, but I'd like to share a few stories. Um, you, you very much were again back to that whole idea of sharing. You would invite teams from overseas to come over and train um, which led to some very interesting interactions <laughs> yeah well you're speaking of the austrians rob yes i am speaking of the austrians ken <laughs> <laughs> well that was a great experience i mean uh i think the, the guys really enjoyed it i know they had a lot of fun going out with the austrians but uh you know i, I don't know didn't that add something to our season? Didn't that add an element? To, uh, oh, absolutely. absolutely. It added some, some color, some spirit. So what the hell are we doing right now? we got integration with these Austrian players and our guys. And, you know, they weren't even close to the caliber, right? But, I mean, it was a great opportunity. And, you know, what's unique about that? Some of those players, they still are, you know, in today's world, they can do all this because it's global world. They're still connecting with those guys. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. But tell us about their coach. France, France, France. Yeah, but remember, you came and got us. Yeah, I was on Friday. Yeah, I invited him to practice, and uh, um, the players were on the ice. And then I went to the board to show my first drill. And I turned to the side, and there's their coach. He's dressed up in his gear. <laughs> I said, "Oh, so you're playing today?" He said, "Oh, yeah, I'm going to do the drills." <laughs> God give him credit. He tried to do the drills. <laughs> That was the first time I seen a coach on the ice uh, dressed up in his player outfit. But it was a great experience, and I think it was great. It made me recognize, see, every everybody does things differently. There's no right or wrong. No, but but it it would be to me that the, the idea would be, you know, underestimate the ACAC or underestimate the State Trojans at your own peril, because things were going on, things were happening, experiences were happening, um, oh. opportunities were happening. Um, one of the coolest experiences that I ever remember was uh, traveling with the team as uh, it was a uh, preseason tournament in Saskatoon that um, yeah. that we got invited to kind of at the last minute. And, Husky tournament. Yeah, and I think it was the first time ever that the St. Trojans played the vaunted U of A Golden Bears. Right. Right. Absolutely. And? We had a beautiful game against them. <laughs> yes, we did. Right? Oh, yeah. And I think... That's when SAPE came on the map, even to the university teams. And they, they had a lot more respect for our team. I think they, are, they had had some respect for Nate in the past, right? Cause of oh, the stuff. from the 80s. From, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and they had some respect for Red Deer to some extent. But this really brought the respect up for SAPE at that point. And we got invited to that tournament every year, every year after that. As a matter of fact, as you know, we used to have a tournament at SAPE where – you have U of A, U of C, and University of Manitoba, uh, 
uh, UBC came one time and stayed at a Christmas tournament and our eye opener tournament got so uh, strong that we only could invite maybe Mount Royal, maybe Nate, and we would we didn't want you know leave the other guys out, but we had such strong university teams there. We wanted to keep the competition high. Yeah, and that was yeah. that was just days that uh, we were trying to have an equal opportunity hockey post-secondary league, right? The idea of why don't we have, say, Nate, Mount Royal, Red Deer, these programs in the CIS and we build a, we build a strong interprovincial rivalries, regional rivalries, and, you know, uh, we, that's what we were trying to do in those days. And it almost came to fruition, but in the end of the day, it was the um, – was the politics about bureaucracy? Yeah, academically. Yeah, right? I, I would call our it. Our, I would, our, my principle on this point was, and I was thinking as athletics director too. Whatever athlete you are, it's not determined academically. It's determined on the court or on the field. And my example was the NCAA's approach with technical slash colleges playing against the universities, and they play equal, yeah. right? I still believe in this principle. I think we would have would have a better post-secondary sports system, and I think that it would be more cost-efficient um, if we did it and have great rivalries. But in any case, that's what we were doing then, and it was a great time, and you're right. That was the turning point for our program. I thought it was dysfunctional is what it was. I, I just I think it's dysfunctional not to have done it. It's funny, though, I you know, not to say or pat ourselves on the back or, or whatever, try to win a fight, but... Not on, not out of the realm of possibility. It may look like that when we come out of this, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Who well, knows what it's going to look like? Who knows what it's going to look like? And if you look down the road, I think systems are going to be reinvented. And have to be. Um, they have to be. And for me, it was always about you know, I think about okay, why is why is why are we playing a school like Briarcrest? God bless them. And, you know, why aren't they in a kind of a tier two division where they got equal opportunity, equal competition? And if we were that good as we were at that time and Mount Royal was that good and Nate was, why aren't we playing each other provincially against U of L, against U of C, against U of A, and versus U of C going to travel to Manitoba, traveling to UBC at a cost of twenty, thirty thousand dollars a weekend. Yep. Know, it didn't make sense and uh i still believe in that principle and then you could you could have these regionals and then they could build up like the americans do again yeah you have regional playoffs and they build to a national final i feel like i got you fired up again but i do i do i do want to ask you a bit of a serious question did that did that take some of the air out of your tire that constant fight the constant banging your head against the did that weigh on you or wear on you well it did eventually. It wore on me from the sense of just couldn't seem to be getting it through, um, through getting it through the system, so to speak. You know, I must say that Irene Lewis, our president of the time, Michael Dyer, the guy, vice president, I reported to these people, the board uh, chair at the time, Doug Mitchell. Yep. I mean, these people were for it. They're out there talking about it. Doug Mitchell, he was, a, as you know, as a strong sport leader, he was talking about it, and I just frustrated to a point where. Why can't we get this to like to the next level? We never ever could, and uh, it just became the idea: of universities don't 
want to deal with this other aspect, right? And now what do you see? You see schools changing their names to get into the university system, right? Yeah. And I think I think I think overall, what's going to happen is the universities uh, will have it all in the end. And I hope that doesn't happen, but we'll see how the new systems go. Do you miss any of it? Is there any part of it that you miss? I miss the people. I miss the uh, we had good people at state that I dealt with every day in my uh, in my organ in the organization in the athletics department, the rec center, and the people around the school. Uh, um, I miss the athletes, seeing them grow and the uh, successes that they had on and off the ice. Um, but you know what? It was time. It was time for a new yeah. new chapter for me. Yeah. And this great opportunity that uh, Scott Salmon and uh, Sean Bullock and Tom Reddy gave me uh, has just been amazing, and it's uh, it's gonna be a, a great new lease on life, so to speak. It's kind of crazy. I'm trying to think. Is there an equivalent to you anywhere else that has? worked on as many different countries national programs i don't know wrong because <laughs> you've worked with the japanese you've worked with the um was it uh hungary denmark sorry denmark yeah um and in, I, canada. in canada H- having yeah. said that you also made trips to scotland and and you've been to other places and you know kind of yeah. non-national team things but i'm not is, is there an equivalent or other coaches do that well, I'm sure there is, but uh, it, it's, it was just an opportunity given to me through uh, my work with uh, Hockey Canada, actually. That's how I got most of those opportunities. And then <clears throat> it's just uh, I would encourage any young coach to follow the Hockey Canada program. And, uh, you know, uh, everything isn't perfect, maybe, but it's, it's a darn good program. And it, it builds your coaching skills, but it also gives you coaching opportunities. But you've got to be prepared like a player. To do your time, mm-hmm. you got to be prepared yeah. to work. Yeah, oh, you you can't just show up for a conference and think, okay, now I'm going to go to Canada's national junior team. You, you got to go push pucks. You got to do your part in the community. You got to build your profile. Was was Denmark probably in terms of your non-Canadian uh, international experience? Was that maybe the highlight? Oh yeah, that by far was because uh, we, uh, we we went from a B pool team to an A pool team, and along the way we we. I thought we had an impact on changing their game a little bit. I mean, uh, you know, the players I had on that on that junior team were Bodker, Mikhail Bodker, Car- um, Lars Eller, mm-hmm. um, Freddie Anderson, the Toronto Maple Leafs, um, Jensen, who played a while with the Oilers and bounced around. The- so we had some good young players that they had to adapt and change their style. And then we brought Bodker over. Because we said, well, you you got to get a little bit more rugged on the boards and handle that piece. And he came over. He played for the Kitchener Rangers. And I think that's what bolted him into being um, the NHL player that he became because right. he got used to it. And then over the years, like we had Jensen come over. We had uh, a bunch of other Danish players come play in the Western Hockey League and the Ontario League. And it's because of that, they got better, I think. You, you saw it from the inside. I only saw it from the outside. That relegation system, is it flawed? Oh, it's, it's, it's tough, it's isn't very, it? Yeah. Yeah. It's very flawed because, um, and they, and they really make you feel like you're, you're not a caliber because for us, and when we got to the, uh, we got to the, um, world juniors and we got regulated, they actually moved us from the main venue to a place way out in the boonies. And like, you're there and like, 
talk about being dispirited. Like, you know, <laughs> you know I, I, I thought, geez, they should have just left us here and we would play our games at 6 a.m. Yeah. Or whatever, right? And so at least we could feel we're still, so you could say, sell the guys on the idea, okay, we got to win this so we can stay here with the big boys. But we went away over there. We went, oh, man, we're back in the B pool. We haven't been regulated to the B pool yet. <laughs> has the um, has the statute of limitations run out on the Japanese story? Are you able to to share <laughs> to share that now? Uh, it's a Japanese discipline story. Yes, uh, sure, I can share it. So, <clears throat> Wally Kozak, my good friend, and, is it, this and is ninety seven. No, ninety six, right? 96, Wally Kozak, um, who was very actively involved with uh, Dave King and a group of coaches going back and forth to train the Japanese teams. And another guy we should have recognized earlier too, Ken, in that Wayne Fleming mode, Wally Kozak's had a huge impact on the game too. Wayne Fleming, outstanding coach, great coach. And uh, another guy we should bring up more. Um, And he, uh, him and Wally... uh, and um, we're going back and forth, um, training national teams there. And, and Wally's assignment was to work with the um, minors club teams, but also to work with the World Junior team. And he invited me along, and I came along with him to work with the World Junior team, their World Jap- Japanese World Junior team. And they were we went to their first training camp, and they were in training to go to the U18 uh, World Championship, Four Nations Cup it was called. It was hosted in by Canada and Nelson, BC, small rink. And um, anyways, so Wally and I went to their training camp and we observed what they were doing. Our job was to coach the coaches, so to speak. So they would coach and we would observe and suggest things, whatever. So anyways, they, uh, they used to have them get up in the morning and do their a little bit of a run around the field and all that. The point on the field where they go by the bushes and the coaches at that point, Japanese coaches, would go back in the room. Well, I said, Wally, you can't, you got to be around here. These are young guys. I'm going to go over. So the next day, I went over and I kind of hung out on the other side of the bushes, and they couldn't, like I kind of was uh, scouting out. And look, sure enough, about four or five of the guys would stop or whatever. So I told the coaches this, and then they corrected that a bit. So in the Japanese culture, um, if an outsider is correcting them, it's really a dishonor, not that you're dishonoring it to them, but they take, ooh, their honor system is so strong. Yeah. They uh, used to let the guy go out at night and then they have a curfew. Uh, and they go up for 10 o'clock was their curfew or whatever. Anyways, three of their guys, better players, weren't back in their rooms. Now, we were in Obahiro, which is a northern uh, island of Hokkaido, and we're kind of isolated there. So the guys really didn't probably do too much. I mean, it's not like downtown Tokyo. But anyways, they came back a little bit later. So Wally and I are sharing a room in his coach's room. And all of a sudden, I hear all this Japanese chatter. Wah, wah, wah. Like, what the heck's that? So I poke my head out the door and hear the Japanese coach. He's been so dishonored that they embarrass him in front of his Canadian coaches. And he's applying some pretty strong corporal punishment to the players. And uh, anyway, so I go to get involved. Wally says, okay, let's go. We're going. Assistant coaches said, no, you can't get involved. But anyways, they, they calmed down a bit, and they banished these guys. And they banished them the, like the forest, so to speak. So I said, well, we got to go find these guys. So we went find them. Wait a minute. They were out in the woods? Yeah, we were, we were just outside of a town of Overhero. 
and we're all like it'd yeah. be like uh well being like in um Kananaskis yeah. out at the what, YMCA camp up there. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they're out they're out there and we found them and Wally and I brought them back to the uh to the to the dorms and we found a little storage room down in the basement. We got them in this room and I turned around to look up in the closet for uh, some blankets so they could sleep on the floor and the mats on the floor. And they were on their hands and knees. They thought I was going to start <laughs> giving them a corporal punishment. I said, no, no, no. So anyways, Wally, Wally convinced them the next morning at breakfast, the coaches, that they should take these guys back, that they never, would never stand a chance against Team Canada's U18 team in Nelson. And they agreed to do it, but it was interesting how cultures collide, so to speak. Yeah, it's, that's what I mean. Like, hanging around with you and being connected to you, I have learned so much about the game through your eyes. And there's a book in there, Ken. There really is. I mean, <clears throat> some of the things you've seen as a recruiter, some of the things you've seen as a coach, some of the things you've seen as an administrator, I mean, it's it's been a bit of a wild ride. <laughs> you know, it just made me think of a story, too, on that. On that uh, you know, you remember, I used to have, it was a common thing for Canadian coaches, make guys do a couple hard laps, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. At the end of a drill, whistle, whatever, right? And most Canadian guys, they'd go to full ice. Well, the Japanese, they were, they had, uh, like, they used to do it around the, the red line at center ice. I said, no, no, no. You got to go. <laughs> no, no, you guys got to go. Oh, God. So we had to stop practice, show them how to do proper hard, hard around the ice two times. Yeah. It was all things like that. And it was fun working the Japanese. They, Beautiful people, uh, very strict system they have over there. And, um, you know, and another thing is that, you know, we were trying – some of their best players on the national team, that Dave King and these guys, William Fleming were working with, they had the trouble that they had their best players with their young players. But in that culture yes. at that time, the older guys had to get all the ice time, had to be on a power play, had to be the first line, even though the younger guys were better players. And it was tough to convince them to – rearrange your priority yeah 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 it's again it's fast i mean it's so much of a a closer game we talked about that earlier about all the the help and everything like that but to see some of these outlying areas early on you know to be on the ice and have the coach of the austrian team visiting in full equipment like i cannot get that visual out of my head like it was so weird but hey it, it may again it's part of what makes it right like that's the journey. And you know what? Remember that we we built it all those guys. Like I had the coaches staying in my house. I had young kids. Debbie, we put we put up the coaches at my house. Guys were players had players staying at their house, whatever kind of players students were staying at, right? Who yeah. knows what the heck they were into? I mean, it was crazy days. <laughs> it was wild. It was wild. <laughs> what do you um you're not done. I don't want this to sound like you're done, but Oh. Any regrets to this point? Anything that you'd do over again? Uh, well, I, I don't think so. I mean, uh, I made some mistakes. I know that, and uh, but I didn't make them. I didn't think for for uh, for uh, being like I said earlier, being a malice. But you know, looking back, some things you do change maybe in your coaching approach. But as far as challenging people to be the best people they could be, um, I think that was uh, my role, and. Um, that's why we were striving for excellence all the time. Yeah. And every program I've been on, I tried to bring that idea that let's let's us be the best program there is, whether it was Denmark, whether it's here with para hockey, 
we're going to be the best in the world. Let's find a way to get there and let's start working at it. And so that's what we're doing right now. And I believe that we're going to be there in, uh, even next season when the world championships in 2022, uh, we're going to super move on and win that gold medal. My last one for you, the question I ask everybody that comes on this podcast, and I will give you no parameters. You can answer it any way you like. I'll just ask you the question, and you tell me what comes to your mind. Ken Babby, give me your hidden Calgary gem. Give me your hidden Calgary gem. Hidden Calgary gem? Yeah, so people listening to this podcast, we're in a pause right now. We want to give them be optimistic, so when everything ends and we're back to normal, we want them to have a list of things. Geez, I listened to that podcast, and he said or she said I should go try this or look at this or go here or visit this. Give me your hidden Calgary gem. Well, I have to say Nick's Pizza. There we go. Nick's Special. I love it. Sorry, sorry, all pizza places, but for me, that's the hidden gem. And you know what? First time I ever met my coaching staff I've been working with the last few years, that's where I took them. I said, we got to go for an, a next special pizza and a couple beers and talk about what we're going to do. And uh, we do that every year when they come to town now. So I, I just love, I think it was a great, great place to hang out. And he's been there and the family's been there forever. And they've been great supporters of, of all kinds of sport in Calgary. Yeah. And I first got onto them again uh, back in the day there and going to Hockey Canada and hanging out with those guys. That's where they ate. And I just kept that going with my program. Great place. I take my family there, my friends there. I love it. Thank you, sir. Um, I could do this forever. I could do it for hours. You know that. Um, I am bitterly disappointed that you and I are not in Red Deer tonight and I'm not watching a video and listening to you talk uh, about being uh, honored by the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame. But you will, and, and we'll get that opportunity, and I look forward to it. But, uh, again, great opportunity for me to thank you for everything you've done for me and the impact that you've had on me and the impact that you've had on the game. So thanks for doing this, Ken. Thank you, Rob, for everything you've given me as a friend and as a uh, colleague and uh, all the work you're doing. The work you do beautifully in the community is just amazing, and I'm so proud of you. And thanks again. and. Thanks to Coach uh, for spending some time with us today. And, and again, uh, uh, congratulations. Today was supposed to be, uh, as this uh, podcast dropped, uh, he was supposed to be uh, inducted and honored by the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, that honor will come, of course, and it's richly deserved. But uh, I thought this, I, haven't, I don't think we've done that. I don't think we've perfect, purpose, purposely uh, planned a podcast for a specific day, but it felt right today to do this one here. So uh, thanks to Ken for spending some time with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you check out some of our previous podcasts when it comes to coaches. We've had Tommy Wielden Jr. on. We've had Tom Higgins on. We've had lots of really good coaches uh, and lots on coaching. Duff Gibson's another one. Uh, so make sure you check out our archives. Uh, we're up over 40 podcasts so far and growing. So you're certainly going to find something you enjoy. I will guarantee you that. Uh, we look forward to our next encounter. See you then. I'm Rob Kerr. This has been the original Six Feet Conversation Podcast, sportcalgary.ca.